0: Dear Father in Heaven, I thank you so very much for this opportunity now to stand before your people and to give this message of healing, and I pray in a special way that you would open our hearts and our minds to the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that it is the Spirit alone that can change our broken, deceived hearts. It is the Spirit alone that can give us wisdom. It is the Spirit alone that can give us the power of to heal for your honor and glory so I pray now that as we spend these few minutes together that your power would be present and that you would allow me only to speak those words that you would have me speak and allow the thoughts and ideas to come to each listener as you would we pray in Jesus name Amen all right so let's start by looking at the overview of what this um, hour Is going to be all about so we're going to look at what is love so I think most people are interested in this topic right most of you have all experienced love in one shape or form I should say all of us have experienced love in one way or another and so this is a hot topic and why is love important to us so we're going to explore that how we're actually hardwired for love and why we need it, and how we have fallen out of love. So we're going to also look at that, potentially individually, but also as a society, how have we fallen out of love. And then we're going to look at the cure. So we don't want to leave people hopeless. We want to make sure everyone has hope leaving from here. So what is love? So this is the topic of many... uh, Philosophers over the centuries, many people have written poems about love, stories, books. What is love? Well, we're going to look at a couple definitions here, and we're going to start with uh, the Greeks, because they spent a lot of time talking about love. People like Socrates and Plato and other philosophers. So in, in Greek, you had four types of love. Eros, agape, agape philia, and storge. So what are these different types of love? Well, agape is an unconditional, self-sacrificing love, the type of love that a spouse would have to another spouse, or our our love for our children, a love of God to man and man to God, to will the good of another. So that's agape-type love. Philia, on the other hand, is affectionate regard, friendship, not necessarily unconditional or self-sacrifice. Think of affiliating with somebody. That's where that word affiliating comes from, right? Philia. And eros is used in regard to mostly sexual passion. And storge is what they call common or natural empathy generally in the context of family also known to express mere acceptance or putting up with situations so i'm sure most of you that have children can understand this one well you might say you know what right now i'm not feeling that agape towards you but I'm storehaying you, <laughs> anyway. In other words, I'm putting up with you <laughs> because I I love you, but boy, you're you're making it really hard for for me to love you right now. So that's kind of the the type love, okay? So the acceptance, but not that unconditional um, love that the agape pertains to. So. The Oxford English Dictionary says that love is an intense feeling of deep affection or fondness for a person or a thing, a sexual passion, or sexual relations in general. And the scientific literature says that love is an emotional bond to someone for whom one yearns, the satisfaction of a yearning. So the heart that yearns for something and then that fulfillment what about the biblical definition i I find it interesting that the definitions we just looked at were actually i think fairly narrow outside of the agape love definition when we look at the biblical definition found in first corinthians chapter 13 and this is a beautiful all-encompassing definition that paul gives us he says love suffers long and is kind Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. And as we go through this list, it's kind of interesting when I've read 1 Corinthians 13 once in a while. I'll look at this and compare it to where I'm at in my life and be like, wow, I have a long ways to grow. I don't know how often you find yourself maybe being provoked by your children or by a spouse or even by a friend or a colleague at work. But yeah, these things are difficult. But this is true love. This really is. And uh, it shows us the kind of love that God has for us and the kind of love that he wants to develop in us. So it does not rejoice in iniquity but it rejoices in the truth. So it's not happy when it sees other people fall or get themselves into trouble, but it rejoices when people are doing well. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But, you know, at some point, humanity always fails, and this is where we need to tap into the source of love, if our love will never fail. We need to be connected deeply with the Lord in order to be able to share that love with one another. All right, so now let's go on to looking at not just definitions of love, but we're going to look at the neurobiology of love. We want to look at what science is discovering when people talk about being in love, what actually happens in the brain and in the body. So there's several phases that they talk about when they talk about a love relationship. And even though this is largely uh, focused on a romantic-type stage, it is applicable, actually, not only to romance, but in a lot of ways to to maternal love and other types of love as well. So what are some of the things that happen in Phase 1 of that romantic relationship? Have any of you here been in love? Can I see your hands? <laughs> All right. So what happens during that first phase of love? This is a question. <laughs> what happens? What kind of things are going on in your body and in your mind? You're thinking about that person a lot. Okay, you're thinking about that person a lot. You can't get them out of your mind, right? What else? Does your heart sometimes pitter-patter when you get close to that person? Nothing can, go wrong. Nothing can go wrong, right? That person is amazing, and it doesn't matter what other people tell you. They, <laughs> they're a wonderful person. So, and we're going to look at why this is neuro, neurochemically, actually. So in phase one, you have that sense of euphoria and excitement. So it's, it really is literally like being on a drug. People get high... And they get addicted to being around that person. They're like, wow, I just can't wait to see them again. I don't really need to sleep very much because you have more energy. It's a highly stressful situation. <laughs> it is very taxing on the body. And if phase one went on for too long, it would actually be very detrimental. For the body and the mind. It would actually start destroying brain cells, and you would actually start becoming fatigued and chronically stressed from being in love. Did you know that? So it's a blessing that phase one is relatively short and usually only lasts a maximum of about one year, and that's the maximum. Usually it's even shorter than that. And again, that's, that's actually a blessing, because otherwise we would wear ourselves out being in love. So what's actually going on? Uh, here we have some of the, th- the, the uh, things that are going on with um, love and the chemical basis of love. And let's go to the next slide and so we can look at that a little more closely. So vasopressin and oxytocin are key players. Now, vasopressin and oxytocin are two chemical messengers that are very important when we talk about attachment. And love is certainly an attachment process. And it's interesting because vasopressin and oxytocin have two different actions on the amygdala. So the amygdala is right here in this picture. And does anyone know what the amygdala is responsible for in the brain? It has a little to do with memory, but I heard someone say stress, and that's true. Basically, the amygdala is what triggers the fight or flight response. It sends a signal down through the hypothalamus, through the pituitary gland, down to the adrenal glands, and then you get what released from the adrenal glands? Adrenaline, and also yeah, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and then cortisol as well. So the amygdala is very important in that fight or flight response. And vasopressin and oxytocin target the amygdala especially. There's other areas of the brain, but um, they have a big effect on the amygdala. And it's interesting because they have different actions. Vasopressin actually increases fear and stress. So you're falling in love, and the vasopressin is being released by the brain, it's hitting the amygdala, and it's increasing fear and stress, and it's warning you. It's saying, I don't know, you don't want to get too close to this person because they might do what? They might hurt you, right? And so then we keep up our guard. So that's the safety mechanism. But oxytocin, on the other hand, is actually anxiolytic and stress-reducing. So do you see how there's opposite effects? So both are being released in phase one, and so you have the battle going on. Okay, is this, going, is this relationship something to be more afraid of, or can I actually start trusting this person, you see? And so over time, if this person proves that they are trustworthy, what do you think happens? Which one wins out? Does the oxytocin win out, or does the vasopressin win out? Exactly. So what happens as people start to get closer, and they start trusting that person more, is that the oxytocin actually starts winning out, and the amygdala starts becoming more calm around that person, and you start being less spastic around that person right (laughs) so you're not tripping over things as much when you're when you're seeing them and making a fool of yourself i mean maybe i'm the only person that's done those sorts of things when you fall in love but (laughs) that's what happens when i when i fall in love so (laughs) interestingly as well both impact the dopamine reward system now why is dopamine important in the brain? What does dopamine do in the brain? Does anyone know? The better than you expect, than you expect hormone. <laughs> That's good, I like that. So, dopamine motivates you, and it motivates you a certain direction. So, of course, it's going to motivate you to spend time with that person, it's going to motivate you to think about that person, it's going to motivate you to buy flowers for that person. It also is very much involved in a sense of euphoria and excitement that we talked about. You know, when people use drugs, that's what's happening. You're getting that big rush of dopamine. And so, being in love, essentially, is like being on a drug, you see? You actually start getting addicted to that person. So that, this, this is what makes love an obsessive, rewarding experience. And I say obsessive because also dopamine is usually involved when we talk about ruminating type thoughts. And so you can't get that person out of your head. So you keep obsessing about them. You keep thinking about them. All right, so that's just phase one. Let's look at phase two. Phase two is passionate love, what they call passionate love. And in phase two love actually starts turning into more of a good thing. It's not quite as dangerous for your body. It's actually positive for your body. So that happens after several months to a year. You start feeling safe, calm, and balanced. And why is that? Why do you start feeling safe, calm, and balanced? Remember the struggle between vasopressin and oxytocin? It's because oxytocin has now won that battle, and you start feeling calm around that person. (laughs) The research says that brain activity begins to be normalized, whatever that means, right? (laughs) So people start acting a little bit more normal. You're not acting as crazy. The passion, however, remains high. Intimacy and commitment increase steadily. And the stress levels are actually decreased, which leads to health benefits. So it's interesting that at first the stress levels really go up, but once you get over that hump and you start building that sense of trust and the oxytocin takes over more, you actually have a decrease in stress because you have someone there that's supporting you, encouraging you, helping you. And again, like we've been mentioning, oxytocin is the key player during this phase. Finally, there's f- phase three, which they call companionate love. Now, not all long-term relationships get to this level, and this some couples say, at least from the research, that they remain in that passional phase of love, but a lot of uh, couples enter into the phase three, the companionate love, and that's after several years, and there's a decrease in passion, so they're not feeling as passionate about that person. However, the intimacy and commitment remain high. And in a lot of ways, it becomes similar to friendships. So you've probably seen older couples that are like, like this couple here. You know, they don't have maybe that passion for each other, but boy, they love spending time with each other. And they're like friends. They tease each other and they have a good time. And that would be more of that companionate type love. Oxytocin, again, is key during this phase. All right, so we've talked about more of the the romantic type of um, love. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about a mother's love. So how does that differ from romantic love in the brain? Well, the interesting thing is it's actually very, very similar. The same circuits in the brain are active. The only difference, really, that they found, a couple small differences, is that the brain regions active in sexual arousal like the hypothalamus is only involved in romantic love and you might say well you know what about that phase one when you have that euphoria and in that excitement and it's stressful do you think mothering involves a phase one in the relationship as well it does doesn't it because when you think about it what happens through that birthing process is that stressful and Greg says, nah. But after watching my, my poor wife go through that, and by, by going through it myself, I can guarantee that, uh, yes, it is a stressful process, but it's also an exciting and beautiful process too, isn't it? And afterwards, you're, you have a hard time sleeping sometimes because you just want to go and you want to look at that little baby. So the same sorts of hormones are being released. And again, the only real difference in the, in the brain is that that area of sexual arousal is not involved. And the other thing that's interesting with mothers is that there's a part of the brain that is involved with rec- recognition of facial expressions that's much more active in mother- mothering-type love as compared to uh, romantic love. And that's interesting to me because mothers need to be, what, especially attuned to their children's expressions, right? They need to be watching, okay, is my child hungry? Are they happy? Are they angry? What's going on here so that I can meet the needs of the child? All true love activates areas of the brain rich in receptors for the attachment-mediating neurohormones, oxytocin and vasopressin. So basically what we're saying here is oxytocin and vasopressin, but especially once you get in that long-term relationship, oxytocin is a key player when it comes to love. And I want you to keep that in mind because that's going to be key to some of the things we're going to discuss later on. Now this is kind of interesting when we talk about unity in love and having that sense of oneness. Why is it that when we get married, for example, and we fall in love, that we actually start losing, in a lot of ways, that sense of self, and we almost tend to melt into the other person's uh, personality, so to speak, and and we we have that sense of unity. There's actually a neurophysiological reason for that. There's a theory called theory of mind. How many here have heard of theory of mind? no one okay so theory of mind is basically what it is is we all have theory of mind what that means is i have a theory as i look at you of what sorts of things you might be thinking about in other words are are you are you if you're paying attention to what i'm saying carefully then my theory of mind about your theory of mind is saying, okay, well, she's probably interested in what I'm saying, okay? That's theory of mind. Being able to recognize by someone's facial expressions and being able to basically predict what they're going to, how they're going to act, what they're going to say, what they're thinking, okay? And a classic example for impaired theory of mind is autism or Asperger's. Now, these people, can often be intelligent. However, they have a very difficult time with social interaction. Why? Because of impaired theory of mind. So it's interesting because when they look at someone, for example, and I have some patients like this, they'll be able to look at somebody, but it's almost like they're looking at a blank face instead of being able to read their emotions and what they're, be able to guess are they happy? Are they pleased with me? Are they upset with me? They can't tell. It's like they're looking at a blank face because they have very severely impaired theory of mind. And that, of course, can make interacting with them terrifying in a lot of ways. Now, how is that related to, to love? Well, yeah, so like I said, it's the ability to determine other people's emotions and intentions. But theory of mind actually also distinguishes self from others which is kind of interesting too. And that's another reason why people with autism and Asperger's often have a difficult time when people around them are upset, for example. It's very easy for them to get upset because they pick up on that energy. They have a hard time distinguishing that this is other people's emotions and not my own. But the interesting thing is in love, this area of the brain that's responsible for theory of mind is also somewhat deactivated. And that's a big reason why we actually have that sense of unity when we start falling in love. Does that make sense? But it's also why we need to be very careful. How many of you here think you can always know what your spouse is thinking or what someone else? Yes, Greg always knows. Well, we need to be very careful because... If we have impaired theory of mind and we're, the, the more in love we are, then we're not going to know what they're thinking. We might surmise, but we're u- often going to be uh, incorrect. All right, so that was unity in love. Love is fearless. And here's a quote that said, there is no greater warrior than a mother protecting her child. So what happens when um, you're in love is that the amygdala activity is decreased. Why? Because that oxytocin is winning out. And the protective instinct at the same time is increased. And people actually have decreased fear and anxiety under stress, which leads to fearlessness in love. So it's interesting to understand that, of course, we see people doing all sorts of courageous things when they love their children, for example, or when they love a spouse. But this is the reason. So now you can understand It's well, it's because the amygdala activity is actually decreased and that protective instinct is increased. Love is blind. Love is blind. Why is love blind? Well, there's cortical areas that are involved in critical judgments and negative emotions that are actually in- inactivated. So it's interesting because someone over here earlier was saying, that when you fall in love, what happens? You you basically, you have a hard time seeing anything negative about that person. And this is the reason, because those critical areas of thinking in your brain are actually shut down. But it's also, so it can be a bad thing if you're <laughs> if you're not recognizing that this person maybe is not the best for me, but it can also be a very good thing because we're not going to be critical. We're going to be accepting and unconditionally loving but it's also a good reason why we should always when we're falling in love we should always get counsel from other people right and say okay is this am i seeing this correctly or am i seeing this inaccurately now fortunately while we're falling in love we can still have good judgment about other things so it seems to be a situational type of blindfold now i want to point out one area of the brain that is very important when we talk about love which is the ACC right here, the anterior cingulate cortex. The anterior cingulate cortex is actually where emotional impulses and prefrontal cortex judgments meet. So in other words, you have activity here from the frontal lobe coming down to the anterior cingulate cortex, and then you have brain activity from the emotional center coming up to meet in the anterior, cingulate cortex. Now, why is that important? Well, because what the anterior cingulate cortex does is it integrates that information. In other words, it takes the logic that's coming in from the frontal lobe and it takes the emotions that are coming up from the emotional part of the brain and it basically processes that information so that it can make a decision about what to do based on the situation. And the anterior cingulate cortex is actually where science has found that's where you make your decisions, especially moral decisions, so deciding between right and wrong. And so the anterior cingulate cortex is processing all that emotional information, all that logical information, and then coming up with a final verdict based on that information. And this is actually where we experience empathy and compassion and love. So it's very interesting when we have that sense of compassion for somebody, that sense of empathy. It's because we logically see that they are in need, but we also feel as well because the emotions and the logic are coming together, and that's in the anterior cingulate cortex. So like I said, this is where we choose right from wrong. And when it's lesioned, in other words, if somebody has damage to the anterior cingulate cortex that actually leads to empathy problems. For example, it leads to disturbance in maternal behavior. What are some that that- well, it's, it's interesting because, and we're going to talk a little bit about how if we have the wrong connections coming into the anterior cingulate cortex, it's not going to be working properly. In other words, if our emo- if the emotions are are deranged and, and our emotions are, are more attached or uh, we have more allegiance to um, certain things like our values are, are more, I'm more interested in uh, drinking alcohol, for example, than spending time with my family, then the, the connections will be deranged and sending impulses into the anterior cingulate cortex to say, okay, decide to go to the bar instead of decide to go home and spend time with the family. So that could be a functional way that the anterior cingulate cortex, but as far as lesion studies, I'm not sure, I don't know if it was strokes or um, actually traumatic brain injuries that they were looking at or just, or, or just the malformation to begin with. Um, okay, so as far as, oh yes. Where this is also where we choose to love or not. So based on all that information, the anterior cingulate cortex helps us to decide, is this person really safe for me to open my heart up to? In other words, am I willing, based on logic and also what my emotions are telling me, and integrating that emotion, am I willing to actually love this person or to allow myself to be loved? All right, so what are some of the benefits of love? Well, I don't have to harp on these things. I think it's pretty obvious. You get pleasant feelings. It's rewarding. Governs behavior. Motivates us to action. Helps self-regulate emotions. So if we truly love somebody, we're going to be willing to deny self oftentimes and say, I'm going to do this for the good of my child. I'm, I'm willing to deny myself sleep so that my child can be fed at night. Or I'm willing to forg- forgo. Uh, my meals so that someone else can eat that's hungry because there's not enough food. So this is the sort of things that governs our behavior and, again, regulates our emotions, and and that it can even bring joy to self-sacrifice, right? Something that doesn't maybe feel good, but it can feel good if we are in love. It promotes social contact, reduces stress, and improves survival and improves overall health. All right. So we've talked about some of the benefits of love, how we're hardwired for love, and really, in a lot of ways, how we need love. But I want to look at how our culture has really fallen out of love. So that's what we're going to look at now. And I call this section heartbroken, a culture of hurt. So what is it in America that has caused us to fall out of love? love. What is it that has caused love to grow cold? Well, I've identified two problems, but I'm sure there are other problems, but these are two problems that I've thought of that have really led to a common destructive pathway in many of our lives, and in especially many of the people that we see as patients. So what are those two problems? Well, number one is consumerism, and it's very interesting. I've done a whole study on what's happened in America since World War II and the advent of consumerism and how it's completely taken over our society and how it's fractured families and really caused people to become more and more isolated. And then the other thing is trauma. And I would have to say that just about everybody that lives on this earth has been traumatized in one way or another, whether you know it or not. Because life, let's face it, life's hard. And life brings in its wake difficulties and trauma. All right, so let's look at this a little closer. So what's the idea of the consumerist? So here we see a consumerist toddler, and we can see how overwhelmed he is. (laughs) And the idea is he who dies with the most toys wins. He who dies with the most toys wins and you can see this idea like oh what's going to make me happy if i'm not happy maybe i'll just do what i'll go shopping and i have patients that do a lot of this they get into shopping addiction right they say well i had a pretty rough day so i'm just going to go to the mall and buy myself a shirt and i'll feel better now how how long do you think that that feeling better really lasts not very long right And what happens is it actually leads to social isolation. And one of the reasons for that is because when you're a consumer and when you're buying all sorts of things and when you have to keep up with the Joneses, guess what that requires? Lots of money, right? Which then requires lots of work, exactly. And we've seen this uh, shift in our culture from the 1940s through the 1950s and 60s where suddenly women were entering the workforce like crazy. And it really caused a lot of isolation in the family instead of being at home and taking care of the children, which, look, I'm not against mothers working at times, but, so I'm not saying women shouldn't be out in the workforce at all, but the mother's primary responsibility is to be at home with the children when the children are young. Children need that. And what 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 happened in America is that what started becoming the babysitter instead? The television, right? And kids started watching all sorts of television, and so instead of having their attachment to the family and to the members of their family, their attachment started to uh, form with those things that they saw on television, like needing the latest consumer gadgets and all these things. Studies are showing that people are more and more socially isolated because they're not spending time with each other. They're spending more time with their phones or their gadgets, and it's uh, becoming a big problem in America. That, of course, leads to emptiness because we need that connectedness. We need that sense of love. And it leads to the common destructive pathway that we're going to talk about here in just a minute. What about trauma? Trauma. So what happens when someone is traumatized, whether it's verbal abuse or physical abuse or something that instills fear or neglect, someone says? Yeah, that's also a form of trauma, isn't it? So what happens when someone's traumatized? Well, you have the idea that you can't trust anybody, right? Right? Because if I can't trust those who were supposed to protect me, those who are supposed to take care of me, then how can I trust anybody in this world? And so what does that lead to? Well, I need to protect myself, right? So what happens then? Then people start building a wall around their hearts, and they say, no, I'm going to protect myself. I'm not going to allow myself to get close to anybody because it's unsafe, which leads to isolation and leads to feelings of emptiness, and leads to the common destructive pathway. So what is that pathway of destruction? Well, we talked about the isolation, right? So from consumerism or from trauma, and that leads to the emptiness, so I have that void in my heart that the toys can't fill, the clothes can't fill, the houses can't fill. I can't really be filled, filled with anything, um, so you, you feel really empty, and that in turn leads to what? It leads to addiction, right? And by the way, when we talk about addiction, it's synonymous with another word, and that word is sin. All sin is addiction. So it's interesting how isolation leads, leading to emptiness actually leads to sin, and that's how the devil will often set up a trap for people to fall into sin. And so one of the worst things that we can do if we're already struggling is to isolate. Because, well, think about it this way. When a, when a lion is trying to catch a prey, what prey does it look for? The weakest one, the one that's away from the herd, right? The one that's by itself. That's the easiest one to take out. And then addiction leads to further isolation. At first, it might be like, all right, great times. We're doing this or whatever. I'm going to the bar. But at, over time, the addiction takes over more and more and leads to further isolation. And it leads to guilt and shame. Because, boy, I understand this is killing me, but I can't stop. And I'm ashamed of that. And, I, and people start drinking alone. They start using alone. They start shopping secretly you start, start looking at pornography, all sorts of things that try to trying to fill that void. And that leads to self-destruction. Now, it's interesting, when you look at trauma, the quantity and quality of maternal care actually determines adult social competence. So if children are not properly cared for as um, youngsters, then they will have a very difficult time being socially competent as adults. Neglect and abuse can do what? Can cause bonding systems to develop abnormally. So remember those bonding systems that we were talking about, that vasopressin and oxytocin system that allows us to actually experience healthy love? and connectedness with one another, if we don't actually develop that as children, it becomes very, very difficult to develop later on in adulthood. At the same time, you have an increased amygdala activity and damage to frontal cortical pathways. So remember, the amygdala was responsible for what? Fight or flight, right? So the amygdala is responsible for triggering that fight or flight response. So basically what happens when you're traumatized is that fear, that natural fear response is going to be increased dramatically. And I see that all the time with patients where they'll come in and they they look like a scared mouse almost because they've been so traumatized by what they've gone through in their past. And at the same time, it also damages the frontal cortical pathways, which is the logical part of the brain. So what you end up getting is is you have overdeveloped fear circuits. So you have all these, remember those connections coming into the anterior cingulate cortex from the emotional part of the brain? Those are going to be more fear connections instead of love connections and trust connections. And then you also have malformed reason and judgment circuits. It's very easy to be critical of people and their problems. But boy, when I talk with people and I realize how much trauma is out there, how much abuse is out there, I say, wow, I think I would be doing a lot worse if that, if I, if that happened to me. It's amazing based on, especially when we look at this neuroscience, how well that a lot of people actually do end up doing. I think that's only by the grace of God. Because... It destroys the brain. And overall, you get those underdeveloped love circuits. But of course, we have that sense of a need for love. Human beings have an intense need for connectedness and love. Emotional isolation leads to feelings of emptiness, and we seek other sources to fill the void. And drugs, sex, aggression, gang activity, and any addiction. I mean, there's so many addictions out there nowadays. People look... they for things to fill that emptiness but you know what they do not especially when you've been traumatized they do not want to turn to the very source that they need which is true love why is that because remember they've been traumatized they're afraid to open their hearts because they think i'm going to be hurt again the same thing is going to happen again i'm not willing to make that decision to trust So addiction becomes love's substitute. It's interesting because the same reward pathway, remember we talked about that reward pathway, especially in phase one of love, right? How people get that euphoria and that excitement, and they have that rush, that dopamine rush. Well, that's the same reward pathway that takes place when people are engaging in addictive activities. You get that dopamine release, and it leads to temporary exhilaration and euphoria, I'm going to take questions at the end, okay? But where does addiction fall short? Because obviously addiction doesn't fill that sense of need for love in our hearts. Well, what happens is addictive drugs actually overstimulate the reward center. So basically when you fall in love, and especially once you are, that stress level kind of comes down and you're at a more healthy state of love, not such a stressful state of love, then you still get some dopamine release when you're around that person, but it's not nearly as much as when you're in addiction. Again, dopamine is not bad. It motivates us to do things. It uh, makes something feel exciting and enjoyable, but when you get too much, that's a problem because what does it do? It shuts down the frontal lobe and at the same time, it overstimulates that emotional part of your brain, which leads that emotions to become stronger than your logic and reason. Okay? So you get, and then afterwards, of course, so you get that big shoot of dopamine, and then afterwards, after the drug wears off or you stop the behavior, whether it's looking at pornography or cutting yourself or whatever it might be, you get this drastic come down effect. And that feels horrible. So then afterwards, you feel even more empty than you did to begin with. And it damages the frontal lobe. And after the fact, what happens after the fact? After the fact, there's no connectedness, right? So you feel even more empty. And that's true even with television. And that's why, for example, with television, people watch the television and it's stimulating some dopamine release. But then after you shut that TV off, the dopamine levels go down. And especially if you're alone in the room, you actually feel worse after turning the TV off than you did when you were watching the TV. Why? Because, number one, less the dopamine come down, but then also because you're just alone. You're, you're realizing what I just did didn't really bring me connectedness or fulfillment. So in the end, it leads to more intense feelings of loneliness and emptiness and leads to further seeking To fill the void. Alright, so I promised that we would definitely get to the solution. And that's where we want to talk about how love is the ultimate solution. And how we can actually share that love and experience that love. And why love is the solution. Alright, so remember, the anterior cingulate cortex is the heart of love. So that's where the emotional impulses and the prefrontal cortex judgments meet. So remember, the emotions coming up from the bottom, the frontal lobe impulses, the logic coming down, and the ACC integrates all that information and makes the best decision on that information. So that's where we decide if we will allow ourselves to be loved or not. But what happens if only fear impulses are coming into the anterior cingulate cortex and on top of that the frontal lobe is not working very well because you've been traumatized what's that panic attacks attacks. yes panic attacks especially when you think about getting close to somebody the and i've seen this where where people are are they logically know this is a really healthy relationship for me and this could actually be in a way a healing type of relationship if i would allow myself to get closer but they have the inability to let their guard down because their fear, because the impulses from the amygdala are so strong, those fear impulses, that they're overwhelming the anterior cingulate cortex. And the anterior cingulate cortex says, no way are we gonna go there because this is too scary. So what is the deciding factor? We basically discussed that. So how do we break that loop? How do we break that loop? how do we actually fix that problem when we've been traumatized or when we've gotten into the addiction cycle, for example, and we're just, our allegiance, our values are more focused on um, buying things or getting things or alcohol or drugs or whatever it might be. Well, it's interesting because all drugs of abuse have profound effect not only on that dopamine system but also on the oxytocin system. And remember, the oxytocin system is the love, very much involved in love. Additionally, ecstasy and fantasy, these are drugs, stimulate oxytocin systems, causing prosocial and empathogenic effects. So these people that sit around and do ecstasy, they're often massaging each other and, uh, and showing this false love. It's not true, genuine love, but it's a chemically induced sense of love. Recent studies show exogenously delivered oxytocin, in other words, oxytocin that they give people as medicine, inhibit stimulant and alcohol self-administration, alter dopamine response, and prevent stress and relapse to drug seeking. So essentially what that's saying is when they give people doses of oxytocin, then people lose the interest in drugs. Does that make sense? Because they're starting, their brain is thinking, oh, I'm starting to get what I really need. I'm starting to get love, even though I know this is still chemically induced. But it's interesting when we start looking at, at how this could relate to love. Oxytocin, therefore, has fascinating potential to reverse the corrosive effects of long-term drugs of abuse on social behavior and to perhaps inoculate against future vulnerability to addictive disorders. So isn't that interesting? So they're studying oxytocin, chemically induced oxytocin, to get people over addictions. I know a cheaper way of allowing people to get oxytocin. Do you, by now, in the lecture? What, what is that? How could people experience oxytocin? Exactly, by experiencing true love, right? Isn't that amazing? All right. So let's look at this uh, little experiment that they've done on rats. Well, you've probably heard of the War on Drugs that was launched in uh, the 1980s. And basically, the War on Drugs was based on the premise that drugs drive addiction. People might, If you ask somebody, well, why do people use drugs? Then people, most people would say, well, of course, because drugs are addicting, and they make you want to come back for more. Okay, but let's look at if that's truly the full story. Here they put uh, rats in a cage. They put them alone with two water bottles. One was uh, laced with, uh, one just water, and one laced with cocaine or heroin. So what was the outcome of this experiment? Well, basically, all the rats that uh, were in this cage alone, got addicted to the drugs, and eventually overdosed and killed themselves. Okay? But there was a researcher, and he, he thought about this. And he said, well, this is interesting, because these rats, they're all alone. They're all isolated. What would happen if we did the same experiment, but we put them with other rats? OK, so check this out. So what he did is he built Rat Park. So Rat Park was this fun place for rats. It had all these uh, ramps and enjoyable things, and um, the rats got to enjoy each other. And so this was uh, Bruce Alexander. So he built Rat Park, and what was the outcome? So again, they had the choice between the drugs or the water. So all rats tried both water bottles. So they all tried the drugs, right? But most rats actually shunned the drugged water, isn't that interesting? So they didn't all get addicted and die, and less than a quarter of the drugs were consumed, and none of them died. Isn't that interesting? Why is that? Because they had the connectedness that they needed. They weren't isolated. All right. Bruce Alexander decided to take the experiment one step further, and he reran earlier experiments, and. He isolated the rats for 57 days, so he he got them addicted, basically, in that isolated cage with the drugged water, and they were there for 57 days, probably almost to the point where they were about to overdose and kill themselves, but then he put them in Rat Park. So he said, what if they're already addicted, and then we put them into Rat Park? What happened then? Well... The outcome was that, of course, there were some withdrawal symptoms, but pretty soon, these rats actually stopped their heavy use of drugs. Why? Because they were being fulfilled in other ways. And they went back to their normal rat life. And they were essentially saved by the good cage. Now, you might say, well, I'm no rat, and that's true. (laughs) We're not rats, right? We're a lot more sophisticated than rats. But, you know, there's another social experiment that took place in Vietnam. And people were taken out of their comfort zone, and they were essentially isolated in a place that they were very uncomfortable and stressed out. And what happened over there is that a lot of people started using heroin. 20% of soldiers became heroin addicts. And 95% of the... Okay, but... Here's the amazing thing, is that after they came home from Vietnam, 95% of the addicts simply stopped when they returned home. Isn't that amazing? Essentially because they got back connected with their families, with their country, the stress level went down when they came home. Heroin, obviously, is a very addictive substance, and they were just able to stop like that, because they had what more of what they needed. All right, so I'm seeing I'm running short of time, and I still have a few slides. There was another experiment that we're, I'm not even going to cover today um, about Portugal. Essentially, in that experiment, they said, okay, you know what, we're, we're going to, instead of punishing criminals and isolating them for using drugs, we're going to focus our money into... Um, connecting them with jobs and with each other and with housing and guess what the drug use went down dramatically compared to when they were throwing them in jail and isolating them so we can see that in this age of loneliness what is the opposite of addiction is the opposite of addiction sobriety what is the opposite of addiction That's right. It's relational connectedness. So are you starting to see how we as human beings crave connectedness? And if we don't get it, we're going to look for fulfillment in all the wrong places. Consumerism and trauma overdevelop addiction and fear circuits, while love circuits remain underdeveloped. Healing requires what? calming the fear circuits, growing love circuits, and empowering the reason center. Abuse is really about distorted relationships. When we we were talking about trauma earlier, it's about thinking that everyone's out to get me. I can't open my heart to anybody. Abused children, even when they're placed into loving environments, still act out because they're afraid to connect. So, how can we still overcome and reach people even when they've been abused? How can we bring those walls down? Well, the children and any of us need the experience of consistent empathic attunement to the feelings and needs. In other words, they need consistent love over time. And what what happens then? Well, over time, the frontal lobe of the brain, as they see okay, this this person's no longer dangerous. This person's actually not out for my harm, but out for my good. The frontal lobe actually starts to recognize that. And it starts sending signals where? It starts sending signals down to the anterior cingulate cortex saying, it's okay to open your heart. It's okay to open your heart. But then those fear circuits from the... Do you think those fear circuits are immediately calmed after years of trauma? No. So what's happening is that the fear circuits at the same time are battling, and they're saying, no, don't do it. But the frontal lobe is saying, yes, it's okay. And so you have this battle waging in the anterior cingulate cortex. Should I open my heart and give love a chance, or should I run away and act out and sabotage the relationship? But over time, what happens is that there is a gradual calming Of the fear circuits so over time if there's that consistent love given long enough that the anterior cingulate cortex will actually start sending messages down to the amygdala as well saying you know what it's going to be okay this person really is trustworthy and there's a gradual willingness to take a chance first john chapter 4 says there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear why because fear involves torment but he who fears has not been made perfect in love there it is but the problem is how perfect how perfect is human love it says perfect love how many of you here love perfectly there should not be one hand raised right because only God can love perfectly and all human beings at one point or another will fail and for every one of us that has been damaged by a life of sin what do we need more than anything else for healing of our minds and healing of our hearts we need to connect with the very source of perfect love in order to calm those fear circuits in order to help us to identify that God is not out to get us but he's out to love us he's out to redeem us he's out to restore us in this the love of god was manifested toward us that god has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him it is only by pointing people and by pointing ourselves by spending time at the foot of the cross and understanding how much god loves us by showing that through his dear son that we can really start to become not just partially healed but fully healed And that's what God wants for each one of us. And that is the power of the cross. And I just wanted to spend one minute relating my struggle. Because, you know, when I think about Christ's method, Ministry of Healing, page 143, says, what Christ's method alone will be successful, right? What is Christ's method? Mingled "Mingled with men as one who desired for their good, showed sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, won their confidence and then bade them follow me when i think about that yes am i mingling with people yes am i showing sympathy for them yes am i ministering to their needs yes am i winning their confidence yes my patients keep coming back they must have confidence in me but have i taken that final step have i bade people have i encouraged people to say follow jesus because he is the one the only one that can give you the peace that your heart longs for the perfect love that will cast out fear that will fill the yearning of your heart it's uncomfortable for me and i've been praying the lord has been laying this on my heart saying daniel you need to present the message of the cross to your patients you need to lift up jesus don't be ashamed paul 's efforts bore little fruit in Athens, despite amazing arguments that could not be controverted. He was having controversy with the philosophers of the day, and they said we can't we can 't say anything, but his arguments bore very little fruit and he learned from this and I'm, I want to ask us, has our work at times borne very little fruit? Why is that? Have we tended to use philosophical arguments and reasoning and and been been critical and tried to show people that this is the truth or have we been willing to lift up the foolishness of the cross henceforth paul adopted a different manner of labor and simplicity he pointed men and women to christ as their savior he said you know what it's not enticing words it's not amazing arguments It's going to be the power of God, the power of love that actually wins people's hearts over. That's what Paul learned. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. My speech was in demonstration of the spirit and in power. And when we lift up Jesus, what that does is it allows God to actually go to work. But when we try to use our own human critical thinking and our own logic and reasoning to persuade people, we are actually cutting short the very working of the power of the Holy Spirit because we're trying to do it in what? In our own power. But God is saying, no, I want you to step aside. I want you to be a little child and just share your testimony of what Jesus has done for you. And that is what is going to open the floodgates for me to use my spirit to convict these people's hearts and bring them to their knees and help them to understand the love that Jesus has for them. Isn't that the way our ministry should be working? If those who today are teaching the Word of God would uplift the cross of Christ higher and still higher their ministry would be far more successful if sinners can be led to give one earnest look at the cross if they can obtain just one look one look at the cross if they can obtain a full view of the crucified savior they will realize the depth of god's compassion and the sinfulness of sin so love's test is am i willing to share what jesus has done for me and am i willing to do that are you willing to do that even if you think it might be foolish even if someone might scorn you even if it's not popular to do so we must pray for courage and i was going to share a testimony something that happened just this week when the lord gave me courage to do that but i know we're out of time so i'm going to end but i want to end with a quote from acts of the apostles From the cross shines the light of the Savior's love. And when at the foot of the cross, the sinner looks up to the one who died to save him, he may rejoice with fullness of joy, for his sins are pardoned. Kneeling in faith at the cross, he has reached the highest place to which man can attain. Through the cross, we learn that the Heavenly Father loves us with a love that is infinite Can we wonder that Paul exclaimed, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is our privilege also to glory in the cross, our privilege to give ourselves wholly to him who gave himself for us. Then, with a light that streams from Calvary, shining in our faces, we may go forth to reveal this light to those in darkness. We talk about giving the last message to the world. We talk about God's glory enveloping the whole earth what is that glory that is the glory of Christ's love shining through his people and it is only when we're willing to step out of the way and allow God to shine forth through us as we become sanctified by his love and we're willing to pour that love into those people we're working with and we're willing to say it doesn't matter what you think of me I'm doing this for God. It doesn't matter if I look foolish. I'm willing to speak simple words so that people's hearts will be touched and healed by the power of God. May God help us to give us courage to do this in these last days. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Father, I don't know about every heart here, but I know my heart is yearning for that richer experience. And each one of us, Lord, needs a richer experience. And I plead with you that you would open our hearts to see that need and help open our hearts to understand the message of Calvary, the message of the cross, understand what Jesus means to us. Lord, give us courage in these days. Give us the faith, the humility of a small child, the willingness to be foolish for you. The willingness to do whatever it takes to share that love with those that we come into contact with. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons,